Hello and welcome to The Hardy Brain, the show that takes athletic, introverted entrepreneurs and leaders and transforms them into ironclad brain performers. I'm your host, Dr. David Hardy. And today on our show, we've got an amazing guest, as always. She is a physician assistant, a transformational coach, a digital products publisher for a magnificent metamorphosis magazine, and the author of Reflections on Transcendence. Welcome to the show, Elizabeth Likens. How are you doing there? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Oh, this is fantastic. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested to dive into this. You've got such an amazing story and, and the work you're doing is fantastic. So you're on a mission to lead people towards knowing who they are uh, before they were conditioned. So kind of how were you conditioned and what was your, your experience to get you into this, this state and, and being that, that you're in now? Well, I was very conditioned <laughs> socially. Um, I grew up, uh, my, my father was a minister, so I was a minister's daughter, American oh, okay. Baptist minister, right? So uh, I, I was extremely conditioned. Um, <laughs> and it, it didn't sit well with me as I got older because I saw as I was getting older that it was conditioning that didn't really include everyone. Okay. <laughs> Right. So uh, I was a, for lack of a better word, I was a human doing and not a human being. I mean, my okay. whole focus in life was doing. And you have to do this in order to get this. And then you have to study hard and you have to be the best. And, you know, I excelled in school. I just happened to be fortunate to have good intellect. So um, absolutely. Yes. I was able to, you know, make great grades and, you know, be high ranking in my um you know, all the schools that I went to. And so I can honestly say that in spite of all of that, no one has ever asked me as an adult, what was your GPA? Oh, no. Of course <laughs> Nobody <not>. cares. Nobody <laughs> cares. But that was my, you know, upbringing, my focus. So it was all regimented. Um, you have to uh -huh. do this and you have to stay in line and you have to do this and this and this. And it just... Um, nearly broke me because that's not how life is. There's a lot of variables in life. And so if you, if things don't turn out the way you have meticulously planned in your head, uh, it can throw you off. Right. So what were some of kind of these conditioning things that, that were occurring with the kind of how you were raised and that kind of you look back on now and go, whoa, that was that was something that kind of really affects me now. Well, it affected me quite a bit of my life is that mm -hmm. uh, basically you have to do things. That's how I was conditioned. You have to do things to be worthy. Uh, anything. Kind of, right. So was there like a whole bunch of like shame tied to it? If, if you didn't achieve things as well, then it wasn't so much shame as not achieving, but it was shame if you stepped out of what you were expected to do within the religious context. Ah. So you were expected to be, you know, uh, a person that lived whatever that version of quote unquote Christian values were. And right. being the daughter of a minister, I got to see how flawed that is from the inside. <laughs> 
<laughs> because when you, when you see people's behavior that does not match what's coming out of their mouth, it, you, it doesn't take you long as a child to see that that's hypocritical. Right. And so, um, you know, I, I struggled with that. And, but yet it, I was so indoctrinated into that way of thinking because of the, I was surrounded by that as a young person. Wow. Um, I carried that into adulthood even though I rebelled against the religious aspect of that, mm-hmm. uh, attending church and, and all of that, uh, it was still inside of my head because it was ingrained. You have to be worthy to have X, Y, Z. And if you don't do this and that, then you aren't worthy. Right. And so you're, when you're starting from a place of you have to do something to be worthy, uh, your your life internally, my life externally was fine. I mean, I had a mm-hmm. education, I had a job, I had all of that. But it's how you feel on the inside that matters, right? Because well, no yeah, you what, were really pushed to be successful as well, um, and you've got this scientific medical background that that you've kind of been a part of for for over a decade now. Um, Kind of walk us through how it went from this being worthy and then, of course, becoming a healthcare provider and uh, kind of being in that next system then as well. Well, I started to see as time went on, and I was probably, frankly, in my 30s before I started to realize that um, there was something wrong with that thinking. And there, I already knew there was something certainly wrong in my rigid upbringing. Uh, my father okay. was, my father was a, a a tyrant. Honestly, when we were children, hmm. and then as soon as we each turned eighteen, he became this nice guy like he was to everybody else, and it was just very <laughs> odd. <laughs> but right. I think he, when I look back on that, I just was able to see that he really was just anxious and thought we he didn't want to have his kids be a screw up, right? Um, and so, um, you know th- that. Even though he changed, I still saw him as he was when I was right. A, yeah, a, that's a kid. eighteen years and very yeah. critical moments in your life where it was that rigid and I'll tell you what to do type mentality. Correct. Even what classes you took in high school and all of that. And then wow. when we turned eighteen, and so now you're going to college and say, okay, well, you you know, if you need something, you'll you know, you'll figure it out. I'm like what? <laughs> who are you? <laughs> but I still needed some of that guidance in school. Right. And in, in life. Um, but I think he felt, well, okay, my job's done now. So, <laughs> and he became, then he became affectionate. The first time he hugged me after I was 18, I'm like, did he get hit in the head? What, I mean, what, what happened to this guy? I mean, <laughs> but I was still angry about how he behaved when we were, younger and it took me uh, it, until my early 30s to realize that he didn't come I mean when we were born he, we didn't come with a handbook and right. he wasn't well equipped to know how to deal with children because he was not treated well as a child either and yeah. so it was an epiphany for me and that's when my evolution started I think is when I finally let go of that and was able to forgive my father mostly and my mother for not defending us against it, uh, for being human, for being human. 
because yeah. I didn't see them. I, you're little, you don't see your parents as human. You see them as some godlike, you know, superhero or something. <laughs> so and, was and it your, kind of a slow process then, or was it kind of where you started to realize one thing after another and it, it snowballed into into different feelings and routes you would go, or was it all of a sudden like kind of this bang, wham, you're hit with this realization? It was slow. Uh, over years, there was a lot mm-hmm. to unpack there. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, um, you know, I was entrenched in my career as a PA by then, and I worked in emergency medicine mostly at that time. I worked in emergency medicine for, gosh, almost 20 years. And wow. so that added um, a lot of chaos in the head, too, because <laughs> you're dealing with um, mostly people that, I mean, there's very few emergencies in the emergency department. You're dealing with a lot of social problems, at least in the U.S., um, okay. that have minor things that are going on, mm-hmm. but they have nowhere else to go. Right. And so it it's easy to become jaded about how you see people in that uh, yes. setting. Yeah. And I was surrounded by people who were also jaded <laughs> that I work with. <laughs> uh, and so I started to not like how I saw people because that's not me. I mean, it never mm-hmm. was me. I was always empathetic and compassionate and kind. And I was seeing that I was becoming not that. Um, and mm-hmm. so, um, of course, yeah, I, yeah. I said, oh, it's my environment. That's the reason. It wasn't the environment. It was, you know, I take that with me wherever I go, right? Right, yeah. So you've got this combination of kind of this uh, crazy environment and then the history of, of kind of the, the strict upbringing. Did you ever find that when you were in this, this system and that a lot of people are struggling and kind of dehumanized that... Uh, the, the tyrant side of your upbringing came out. Yes, yes. You, I would always have to struggle with that. Um, mm-hmm. You know, not to the degree I think that some of my colleagues had where they just had no, nothing good to say about anybody. Uh, right. But uh, <laughs> it was a pull into that direction. It was a pull in that direction. And uh, I didn't like that about myself. Mm-hmm. And so I thought that I would have a healthier life. And that part is certainly true if I left that environment. But in my head, I thought, oh, I'll magically be myself again if I leave that environment and go into another environment. Well, uh, newsflash, whenever you go into another social setting, that same stuff comes with you. Mm -hmm. Uh, And each social setting in a workplace has its own, you know, people and the way they interact with people and how they see patients, how they see one another. And Mm -hmm. so it's certainly a much lesser degree than that. But the first uh, role that I had outside of emergency medicine was in sleep medicine. You can't get more opposite than that. (laughs) (laughs) Right. You can't be like, just sleep better. (laughs) Right. But the the same um, feelings were there that if I just had a different job or if I just had a different this or that, I would feel better. Right. And of course, you know, it took me a, lot, a little bit of time to figure out that that's not the case because how you feel is within you. It's not mm-hmm. external to you. And I started seeing that um, 
you know, I can even remember from my youth, some people who had just a really tough time growing up. They were, had little money and, um, you know, their family situation was way worse, worse than mine, but they were happy. Yes. Yeah. And did you, you obviously longed for that or did you kind of come to that realization later while you're processing all of all of this? Well, it took me a long time to, I mean, it was a gradual thing. It wasn't mm-hmm. like overnight. I mean, some people have this overnight epiphany, but that wasn't me. I guess my head is thicker. <laughs> <laughs> Gradually, it. I would see examples of, okay, this, maybe this is from the inside. But then I would go back to, well, it's because of circumstances. And you hear that in society as well. For example, this person is the one. Right. He makes me, she makes me happy. Well, no one can do that. That's mm-hmm. within you. But we're conditioned even everything we watch on media, movies, everything, is that somewhere outside of you is where happiness comes from. Right. And the entire time you're kind of attached to this this tendency or this notion of being worthy for it as well. Correct. 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 Now, what even, sort of steps did you, you take to overcome that, though? Because this isn't uh, light stuff that you had to deal with. This is deep down and ingrained. Well, I started to uh, study Eastern philosophy and okay. read all sorts of books on Buddhism. And actually, I even joined a Western Buddhist, um, joined, I guess maybe it's not the correct word, but it would attend um, mm-hmm. the, a, a local Western Buddhism. Um, it was a home that basically you had uh, meetings that you could go to. But then I rebelled against the structure. <laughs> Even though I like the uh, philosophy, the structure was still there. There was a patriarchy and a hierarchy Mm -hmm. and, you know, it, and in this particular, I mean, I'm sure not all uh, are like this, but basically in that particular setting, um, the males got to inhabit this home that they bought and as a group, but not the females. Really? Yeah. Because it's an all male house. (laughs) <laughs> no, and it's like, okay, that's not, you know. And so I was looking for this idyllic, you know, Walden's Pond sort of <laughs> situation. And it's like, okay, no, that we're we're still humans, right? So yes, um, that that's not that you just can't go somewhere and find something that mm-hmm. will solve everything. So, so I kept when you say that, go find something. Uh, did you originally kind of? start looking into these Eastern philosophies from an intellectual perspective, uh, kind of driving you for more information to how to feel better? Or was there still kind of this spirituality that that was within you from maybe your upbringing or just kind of how you were as a person? I think it was probably both intellectual Mm -hmm. and a a spiritual seeking because I've always considered myself to be a spiritual person. Uh, but as I became older, not a religious person, I'm still not a religious person, mm-hmm. meaning you're attached to a particular religious doctrine. Right. But I am, uh, 
operate my life from a spiritual space. And honestly, we are spiritual. We're in this body. Yes, <laughs> but that, yeah. <laughs> that which we are, it's just not explainable. I mean, we, there's a spiritual or a force or an essence within us that animates this form. And when I've seen many dead bodies and you can feel mm -hmm. when that is not there. Right. Um, and so um, that that's the mystery of the universe, I suppose. But I, I consider so, myself. A I, I don't mean to person. cut you off, but that that is such a powerful point. Um, life and death there. Um, what were some of kind of those experiences then with that the spirituality of, of dying and death? Well, prior to becoming a, a PA, I was a respiratory mm -hmm. therapist. And so okay. I saw, I you know, managed patients on ventilators, on life support, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, and I saw, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of people in their last moments of life. Oh, wow. um, and some, I, you could feel, even though in my younger state where I was so blocked, really, mm -hmm. um, you could sometimes just feel that essence leave the person and then i would look up at the monitor and their heart flatline it's okay they're gone but you could feel it there right. was a reverence about that huh now having those experiences obviously built kind of this spirituality with with yourself and realization of that yeah there is something deep within all of us not just the the meat sacks that we're, we're carrying around. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but how, how do you explain that to people who've never been around it and never experienced um, that to, to the extent that you, you have? It's, it's challenging for others. It certainly was challenging for me to connect the dots that, that what we're looking for is already in us. Right. We're looking outside of us is the problem. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it's difficult and it's a process like it was for me, unless a person is ready to hear it, uh, to, to understand that what can help you is already in you. Right. You don't have to go and you can go somewhere to get information or to help kind of make sense of things. I mean, that's where coaching comes into place. You're really a guide. You guide the person to where they can heal themselves. Mm -hmm. I can't heal anybody. No. <laughs> and, you know, and it's, it's folly to think that you can. I mean, even, you know, in a clinical setting, um, I can provide tools that are medically accepted <laughs> to keep my license. Right. Um, but the, the work is on that person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they, it's it's a journey through life then that's individual for for absolutely everyone and uh in these situations um was it a sterile environment um was there something missing um in this end of life process for for a lot of a lot of folks then i would say for most all of them because at the time I, that i was a respiratory therapist um you weren't often allowed to be, it was still that notion of, well, you don't want to see people dying, so we don't want you to let you in the room. 
Hmm. That has thankfully changed. And it has thankfully also changed that at the time when I was a respiratory therapist, um, you kept people alive no matter what. So they could have terminal illness. And I just felt ill having to torment. That's how I felt like I was torturing these people. Every time I went in the room and kept them on that machine, but I didn't have the power to take them off. Hmm. Um, I felt apologetic. Right. Um, Because when they had something terminal, it's not like you're keeping them on life support and then they'll get better and have their life back. Right. Uh, But we would go to extreme lengths and what seemed to be almost torture, honestly, to keep the people alive. Um, And their family wasn't around. Now that has dramatically changed. Now you can have family in the room and even during a resuscitation in most places, at least here in California. So the Mm -hmm. process of dying is allowed to be shared with the family. I mean, even with our pets, I mean, I've had, uh, you know, our, you know, a few cats that we've had to have uh, put to sleep and that's literally that. I mean, you get to hold them and they give them medication and it looks just like they go to sleep. Hmm. Um, And so that has changed, thankfully, in the, medical and veterinary environment. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. No, definitely. Right. Now we, we spoke about kind of the, the whole process being an individual journey. And of course we're surrounded by other energetic bodies and people. Um, one thing I've heard, and I'm just curious about this was that a lot of people will pass when their family go out of the room. Is that, something you observed as well, or am am I spreading misinformation on that? Uh, I don't know that I could answer that because often Mm. when I was in that situation, I was also focused on their clinical state. Right. Of course. Yes. Right. Mm. But um, Mm. I would say if a, in more recent years, if the person stays in the room, they may pass with them there. Right. Um, if the person goes in and out, they often pass. Uh, so it could be timing. Be it. it could be the, the, that individual's timing as, as to when to go. Um, hmm. If we have some kind of choice about it. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting, interesting thing. We, we won't know. <laughs> no, and there, we can't. Right you know, reverse the clock and come back and tell anybody what that experience was. Nope. (laughs) That's, that's for certain. So this environment, um, initially, although it's changed has been, been very stale and, and missing, missing some aspects to it, um, and has progressed and become a lot better and for, for the family and everyone involved. Um, what have you seen in kind of the, the other systems you've worked in then with within healthcare then. Um, I know you mentioned one, one point you were, uh, were a director for a corrections facility as well. Is that correct? I was a medical provider for it. Medical uh, provider. Yes. Yeah. We had a medical director, but he uh, came just a few hours a week to basically review the charts. It was okay. his, <laughs> his role. I, he did some, uh, he did, physicals for some of the inmates as well. Hmm. Um, but yeah, that, uh, I would say that, that medicine, no matter what 
system you're in is a business. Right. And we can, it's kind of like putting lipstick on a pig. <laughs> you yep. can, you can uh, make it look like it's warm and fluffy, but it's still a business. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of what we all do is driven by what we are expected to do to make money for the corporation that we work for. Okay. And so a lot of decisions that are made uh, that, that may impact patients um, in their experience is revolves around the profit. Right. And I'm, I'm sure that's true with any business, but um, I don't know. I think we may, may have the idea that it should be, um, and, and rightly so, honestly, to be a better experience for patients when you're dealing with their physical health and mental health. Um, But the reality is in the system I work in, especially now with this, we're in the the midst of the triple demic, right? (laughs) There are far more patients than we can safely see. And so we've had to restrict that by having appointments in urgent care, which is a new concept really. And, uh, (laughs) but we can't as providers see the amount of people that would that come so we have to have a process to be able to say who we can see um, which is kind of like a first come first serve you get a reservation for the day essentially wow um, yeah but but all the systems are doing that because there are more patients than we have people to take care of them a lot of people have left medicine entirely right what are some of the reasons they're leaving medicine then Oh, burnout, I think, overwork, yeah. burnout. During COVID, it was uh, that changed a lot of how we do things. So it was like, mm-hmm. okay, I'm not, I'm not going to do this anymore. And sadly, I mean, even when I was still in emergency medicine, these young uh, doctors out of residency hated their job right out of the gate because they didn't realize what they were actually getting into until they started doing it. <laughs> uh, and and how so? What, what, think, were the, what were these mismatches and what they expected and what actually happens out there? It probably depend, depended on why they wanted to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think now a lot of people are driven by the income and think, well, I, I, you know, I'll make this big income and I won't have to do much work. Well, that, that's the mismatch. You have to do a lot of work, <laughs> a time. lot of hours um, in a, you know, any given shift that you work, there's a tremendous and ever increasing amount of charting that you have to do. Uh, oh, yeah. And, yeah. And there's meetings you have to go to. And, you know, if you're a full-time person, it's, uh, or, you know, I'm not, but at this point, but if you're a full-time person, you're probably still adding six, eight hours a week minimum. Mm-hmm. And that's in a job where you're not on call. Now I have had jobs where I've been on call, which you hardly ever sleep. Right. And so at some point, I think people see if they're leaving the field, those that don't see that stay in it and are unhealthy, but they see, well, wait a minute, there's probably something I could do to make that same amount of money and not work so many hours. Right. Absolutely. Now you've definitely kind of seen, uh, the mental health aspect of, of several different aspects uh, 
within the healthcare system. Um, is it kind of this lack of addressing it that made you go or pushed you or pulled you towards the, the work you're doing now with the transcendence coaching and the digital products that, that you, you come out with? Yes. Uh, I think that mental illness to a tremendous degree um, is how you see yourself and how you get stuck in these thought patterns that take you out of reality. Um, Mm -hmm. And in the medical world, we just throw medication at people and Sometimes they get to see a therapist, but there aren't enough therapists to see everybody and not everybody has the, the amount of money to be able to right. pay a therapist. And, mm-hmm. you know, it is, and, and at least in, you know, the U S you may take months before you see a psychiatrist and you may need medication because you're at, at that point, you might even be in psychosis. And so okay. it's a revolving door of uh, people that need help. Um, and so, you know, obviously as a coach, I you know, expect payment for that because it's a mm-hmm. you know, job, but I also wanted to make a variety of things available for people who can't afford that. Right. I have some, you know, free publications. I, you know, have low cost books and, you know, um, this digital magazine so that people can have access to something that can point them towards themselves Uh, because in the medical system, at least in the U S it can't address all of that. Right. And the mental health system is uh, overburdened even more than the medical system. Oh, immensely. Vastly. Vastly. I mean, they just don't have enough people and they also experience probably even to a greater degree, the burnout, because Mm -hmm. it just feels overwhelming. I mean, I still feel that sometimes when I'm in the midst of, of, you know, working in the urgent care. It's like, okay, I I can only see one person at a time. I have to focus on that because if I looked out in that lobby, I'd have a panic attack, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Almost definitely. Now, also in the mental health field from, kind of what you've experienced, what you've said here. Um, Do you think they're using a lot of kind of the incorrect tools as well? Like you have a a system that's overwhelmed, overburdened, but at the same time, are the tools being used actually effectively addressing the issues and causes of these conditions? I would say no, they're not. Uh, because, and, and I'm sure that's just the understanding of their training. Um, but we address an individual problem, for example, Mm -hmm. say alcoholism. Right. Uh, well, and, and I do agree with, you have to detox from whatever drugs you're using before any kind of therapy helps, because it's not going to help if your mind is in an altered state. I mean, I, I still agree with that. But and and you just, saw the, the detox side as well, correct? Yes, yes. Um, how so? Well, I worked in corrections for several years uh, mm-hmm. as a medical provider there. And so every, pretty much every inmate that came through booking needed some sort of 
um, detox. It was very unusual to find a, an inmate that came in that wasn't using some kind of substance. Right. Um, so I would get to know some of these folks that were just there on minor drug charges and they'd go in and out, in and out. And they were an entirely different person when yeah. they weren't on the drugs. Right. I, I mean, was, just yeah. <laughs> night and day. Mm-hmm. Although some, if especially if, if it was meth that they were using, can change their brain chemistry to where all of a sudden that last time they're not okay and won't ever be okay. Yes. Yeah. It's pretty permanent if you do that damage. Yes. yes. And so that it's segmented, I guess you first have to address that. And then once they're don't have the drugs on board, then I think what mental health is trained to do is to basically make the moment better, Uh. but not turn the person back into themselves and to see that their greatest power is in them, Mm -hmm. not by doing techniques and uh, seeing a therapist the rest of their life or, you know, deep psychoanalysis of the past and trying to somehow work through that. Um, In reality, the past is over. It's just a memory. And revisiting that in therapy over and over is, is honestly like torture. Um, We can't change it. So why would we want to go over it and over it and over it? Uh, And so I think the whole system is broken. What would be a better strategy um, versus revisiting the past over and over again. Uh, what strategy would you advocate to, to replace that with? Well, I think that's where the my approach in transformational coaching comes in, and that's how I try to deal with that yes. with patients when I see them, the very limited time that I have to spend with them, is that mm-hmm. if you stay in the present moment mentally, You're going to know exactly what you need to do. When you're anxious, you're thinking about the future, your head's stuck in the future. Well, what if this happens and what if that happens? Well, we have absolutely zero control over that. But if you stay in the present, you'll know what to do in real time as it shows up. Regarding the past, that's where people get shoved into depression because they think if, and I, I was there myself, if I only did this, then this would have been better. Well, we can't ever go back, never. And we've all made mistakes in our lives or wished we'd done things differently, but we didn't. Right. And so taking up life for where it is now, now that's not to say that some things have lasting consequences. For example, in a, uh, the people I met in corrections. Yep, um, exactly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've had some friends who've ended up from childhood that have ended up in a correction correctional institution that, you know, not locally, but, and so they have beaten themselves up and, but, you know, they're having to pay their debt to society as, as they say. Uh, But once they've had a chance to review all that, they beat themselves up about why they did it in the first place. Well, they can't go back and change that. No, impossible. But they can start from the present wherever, you know, and and tomorrow's the present too when you're in it. (laughs) (laughs) So if you stay in the present, 
that's your key to knowing what to do. It seems to be the portal to tapping into your, the essence of who you are, the universal right. essence that's in all of us. So how do people stay in the present versus the past and versus being in the future? It's basically you have to constantly be on guard as to what you're and observing your thoughts. Feelings, I think, are a big tip off to that. So if I'm feeling icky or anxious, or then that's my tip off that my thoughts at the moment cannot be trusted. So yeah. I need to kind of just step back and say, okay, what, what, what am I thinking? What, what's that about? I mean, we can't control our thoughts at all. I mean, it's it's folly to try to control them, but we can observe them and see which ones might be useful mm-hmm. and which ones aren't. And the way I see it is the brain is just, it's exactly like a computer that just is always on. And we're right. in the background, who we are really is in the background watching that. Mm-hmm. But sometimes we think, most of us think, the brain is who we are, this machine that takes data, processes it. You see something that triggers another memory, and then you go down that path, just like on a computer. It's just like, it's like surfing the web. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a, it's an ADD producer. Uh, yeah. You know, you just chase this little rainbow and that rainbow. Well, that's kind of how the brain works as I see it. Uh, and so um, it's important to stay vigilant all the time mm-hmm. as to observing what's going on in your brain. Sometimes it's useful. Most of the time it's not. Right. So you've got this, this heightened awareness then that you help train people with to start to realize where their thoughts are taking them. But you also use other strategies, techniques to change the state. So that you're able to explain this better and people grasp it as well, correct? Well, I wouldn't call it necessarily a technique, but mm-hmm. it is whatever works for that person to observe what's going on inside of their head. And honestly, what you think you feel. Right. And mm-hmm. so you are you might not be hip to what you're thinking, but you are aware of what you're feeling. And yes. you're feeling what you're thinking. And mm-hmm. so if you back up from that and think, why am I feeling so awful? Then you might be able to see, oh, well, I'm just remembering from, you know, years past, whatever. And just think, well, that's over. I, you know, I can't do anything about that. And so the often the moment that you identify that, another thought pops up because you're no longer chasing that little rabbit. Right. And so another thought pops up like, geez, what am I going to have for dinner? I mean, completely random. <laughs> so it takes you out of that. You may go back to that because we can't control what the brain does. But the fact that you recognize that gives it less power right. over your attention. And so it's a, it's a constant process. I mean, even, you know, even when we're sleeping, I mean, I'll wake up with think a weird dream and then I try to give that meaning I'm saying it's a dream (laughs) it's not I mean it's 
you don't have to analyze it as a dream. You know, it's just crazy. You know, you woke up in the middle of this, you know, thought soup. <laughs> thought soup is a good way to put it. <laughs> yeah. A bunch of spontaneously firing memories all, all coming together into basically this small window of consciousness that, that we're gifted. Um, and some, depending on when you wake up, um, mm-hmm. some are so realistic. Oh, yes. And I think when we're awake, it's the same. Some things mm-hmm. seem so real and they're not. Right. It's just how we're seeing it, how we're perceiving it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, we can we can spend hours on, on these topics. Like like sleep is just one of them, but of of course your experience and wealth is really kind of what sets you aside from from uh, other transformational coaches out there. And uh, I can see how you're really able to to guide your your clients through this journey and help them process things better and improve their lives. Uh, so how would people find you for more information and to, to discover what you do? Well, probably the easiest way to find me is if you if they remember my name <laughs> is <laughs> Elizabeth M for Marie, Elizabeth M Likens.com. Okay. Uh, also uh, link tree slash backslash E Likens reflects or just E Likens. Um, mm-hmm. uh, that lists all the places that you can find me. Excellent. And both of those will be in the show notes, of course. So make sure you click on those links and discover Elizabeth Likens. And stay tuned for the next episode of The Hardy Brain, the show that takes athletic, introverted entrepreneurs and leaders and transforms them into ironclad brain performers. Take care. Bye-bye.